Okay. Everybody can be seated, please. Chris, <laughs> look at me. Um, let's pray one more time for me. Um, <laughs> uh, dear Lord, um, oh man, uh, hard Sunday, hard Sunday. Um, Lord, I uh, thank you so much for being alive. I thank you so much for being real. Lord, I pray that these would be your words and not my own. Um, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to what you have to say. Um, and I thank you so much for being alive. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Yes, I got a good morning from people. Excellent. Uh, my name is Sush. I'm one of the elders here at Grace. Um, Sung asked me um, a while ago to give a sermon on intimacy with God, and it's, it's related to my story, you know, so I'll give that part of the story in a minute in terms of why intimacy and why knowing God in a deep way is a really important thing to me. Um, but first, before we dive in, I'm going, I'm going to need to ask for some grace, okay? Um, I'm a pacer, all right? I, I, I pace back and forth when I give messages. It just is who I am. So you'll see me kind of wearing a little rut right here as I go back and forth. Um, it's a way of me kind of just being authentic, staying in tune with my heart and what I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying. But uh, in fact, people have called me the mad scientist because I'll literally just be kind of going back and forth. But... Um, I'm going to ask for your forgiveness on that. I recognize it can be distracting. And if you get seasick and need to vomit, there's some bags in the back, right? So you can kind of just do it and just come back, right? It'll be okay. So um, hopefully you don't get sick. But anyway, okay. Uh, we're going to dive in. Um, I like giving roadmaps for people in terms of a sermon where we're going. So we're going to have three parts of the sermon today. Uh, first will be me, right? So who I am, who am I and what... Part of my story really pertains to intimacy with the Lord. Um, the second is barriers to intimacy with God. So I'm going to make a disclaimer that when I first made this sermon and practiced it, and yes, I practiced it all the way through, it was 95 minutes long, okay? So we, I cut it, I promise. All right, we're not going to be here that long, I promise. But the disclaimer is this is not an exhaustive sermon, okay? This is not going to go over every single barrier to intimacy, Okay. What we are going to go over are two barriers that are primary in my life, and I would assert are probably primary in the lives of our congregation in terms of the context that we live in, and these are barriers to intimacy with the living God. Okay? And then the third part of the sermon, is going to, and that's going to be the end, is one principle that I try to live by when it comes to intimacy and a series of questions that as I'm living life, I try to ask to kind of reorient where I'm going towards that deeper relationship. Okay? So first, me. Who am I? So I grew up in a non-Christian household. Uh, I grew up in a Hindu household. And I don't, I don't say that as some sort of indictment on my parents. My, my parents were and are amazing people. Okay? They love me. They sacrifice for me and my family to this very day. Okay? So they gave me every single opportunity I could have from the world's standpoint to succeed. Okay? But it was in spite of those opportunities that I grew up feeling this just like thing right here. It was just this like hole. You know, I couldn't describe it. But the way I describe it now looking back is I felt purposeless and incomplete. That's the only way I can describe it. And I looked in many places, right? So I looked in other religions. I looked in my relationships with women. I looked in alcohol. I looked in other substances. I looked in my grades, my academic pursuits. I looked everywhere to just 
make this go away, right? That's just the way I grew up. And it never did, right? I, some things would kind of give me a little blip, you know, and then it just kind of go away, right? And it happened to be God was working, and he is working, he continues to work, but he's working in my life. And the short form of the story is I, it came to a day where I remember the moment I was saved. I remember the exact moment that I transitioned from a follower of the world to a follower of Christ. Right? I remember that moment. And the way I describe that moment is this, that I have never felt purposeless or incomplete again. Now, I will say that it's not that I don't struggle, right? I still feel doubt and sadness and anger feel frustration about the way the world is. I still sin. Just ask my wife and my friends, right? Woefully imperfect, right? So it's not that everything became hunky-dory, peaches and cream, right? But I can tell you definitively that I haven't felt purposeless and I haven't felt that incompletion again. I know what I'm here for. I know why I'm here. Why is that important when it comes to intimacy? Because for me in that day and today, I was and am transformed now, right? It's not that there was some power long ago that made me different. It happened today to me in that moment. And so it implied to me that there is a power, a being in this world that is alive now, right? That is actively living and breathing out his redemptive power now. And I wanted to know that being, and I still do. I want to know what he is about, what he has left to say, what he has left to do in me and through me in the world, right? Because he is alive. It's not just about salvation and the, and the atonement of my sins and me being able to enter heaven, right? That's essential. I'm not trying to sound sacrilegious. It's an essential part of the story. But we have a living power, right? And that, for me, was compelling, and so as we transition into the barriers to intimacy with God, just understand that context and the fact that getting to know the living God has real implications in terms of who I was and who I'm becoming, okay? So we're going to go into our barriers, okay? And we're going to use Philippians 3, verses 3 through 11 to go through those two barriers. And this is written by Paul. I'll give a little bit of background on Paul in just a second, but first we'll read the verses. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I, Paul, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
Oh, I love that. I love that passage. I love Philippians. I, I've actually gravitated towards it ever since I was saved 14, 14 years ago to the month, actually. Um, but a little bit of background about this. So who's writing this? Paul. Paul is writing this. For those of you that don't know who's, who Paul is, Paul was an apostle. Paul was an apostle that lived in the times of Christ. He actually had his primary impact on the church right after Christ was resurrected from the dead. Okay? Paul himself underwent a radical transformation. So before Paul was Paul, he actually had a different name. His name was Saul, right? Saul, as, he, as Paul points out about his old self, Saul, in this passage, Saul was the Jew of Jews. He was the Jew, right? He did it better than anyone, right? He had everything, and he put his confidence, identity, and value in those things rather than Jesus, okay? Saul meets Jesus and is radically transformed into a follower of Jesus, and he's actually renamed Paul. And Paul goes on to become probably the most important missionary in the history of the Christian church, and scholars actually say he is one of the top five to ten most influential religious figures in the history of mankind. So an enormously powerful figure, right? Now, Paul is detailing in this passage intensely personal things about himself, right? We look at, when we looked at it and read it, he's actually saying who his old self was, what he fundamentally valued about the world when he was his old self, and his old sin. He's incredibly transparent, right? Then he goes on later in the passage to detail his new self, his new values, where he places his confidence now. Okay? Intensely personal, rev revealing himself to people, right? Now, one additional context that's important before we dive in is Paul is in prison when he writes this. Right? So you cannot accuse Paul of talking the talk but not walking the walk. Right? Paul, as Saul beforehand, literally had everything the world could give. He counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. He literally loses everything, including his freedom, and he's in prison when he's writing this. That should carry weight in this passage when we engage, okay? So we're going to dive in. The first barrier is in the beginning of the passage, okay? So verses 4 and 5, and there's kind of some subcategories. So we'll deal with each subcategory and bring it together in one barrier, okay? So verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. We'll stop there. So Paul is describing a pre-post, right? He's saying, hey, look who I was and look who I am now. But he's not just doing that. He's actually pointing out his fundamental values before. So here he says, eight, circumcised eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. What Paul is saying that when it comes to two things, when it comes to birthright and status, I had it all. I have it all, right? There's no LeBron James's son, right? There's no Prince William or Harry of the royal family. I was it. I have it. That is my status and birthright. I was the dude when it comes to that in my community. Nobody had any more reason to place any confidence, any more confidence or value or identity than I did in those things. He doesn't stop there, though. He goes on, and he says, as to the law of Pharisee. So, the law was the old Jewish law. It was the knowledge that was deified. It was, what we, it was what the Jews pursued in terms of what they wanted to know really well, right? And the Pharisees knew it the best. So Paul is saying when it comes to the pursuit of knowledge, 
Nobody did it any better. I was a Pharisee. I was the best of the best. Okay? Goes on to say, zeal, passion. When it comes to passionately pursuing the things that are looked to in my community back then, I didn't just do those things. I went so far as to persecute the new Christian church, the church that was felt to be fundamentally dangerous to the Jewish way of life, right? So he had so much passion, he took it a step further. Additionally, not just those things, he then goes on to say, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Not just knowledge, not just passion, but performance, right? So not just knowing the law, when it comes to actually following what it says, Paul did it perfectly. There was nobody that had anything on him when it comes to that. So birthright, status, knowledge, passion, and performance. Paul had it. He did it. He was the best. And he put his entire confidence, identity, and value in those things rather than Jesus Christ. Okay? But then he goes on to say, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul here is, notice what he doesn't say. Knowing Christ is better, right? He doesn't just say that. It is. But Christ, knowing Christ is so much better, so much better, that the old things that he placed his fundamental identity in are now loss. It's not just that they're less valuable than Christ, right? Knowing Christ is so valuable that the old things are lost, are the opposite, the opposite of what they were before. So he is implying that the, those two ways of looking at the world, those two ways of operating and placing your value cannot coexist in the same person. You either value one or you value the other, okay? Which brings us to our first barrier. Our first barrier to intimacy with God is anything in which you place your ultimate value, confidence, or identity other than Jesus Christ, anything. And we can kind of change the words around a little bit, right? We can kind of see how we could put present-day things into those words and make them real for us, right? So students, right? Students. A student of students as to knowing my discipline, top of my class, right? Uh, Parents, right? A parent of parents as to behavior of my children, angelic, right? Any number of things, pick your poison, right? These are all things that in in and of themselves, they're probably, they're not bad, right? But if we put everything we are, if we put our identity, confidence, and worth in those things, rather than the living person of Jesus Christ, there'll be a barrier to knowing him, okay? Moving on to the second barrier. So second barrier is focused on this word no, okay? And this word no is in the rest of the passage. I was gonna go through all of it, but it was 95 minutes, remember? So I decided to pare it down and we'll just talk about it here, okay? So um, this word, no. So let's just go through just this part right here, right? So that I, that Paul, that I may know him, Jesus, okay? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. So what is Paul getting at when he uses this word, no, here? So this Greek word, the literal form of this Greek word is used elsewhere, Okay? And it's used actually by Jesus himself. And it's used in a particular way, in a particular context, and that has implications in terms of how we interpret it here. So I'm going to show one, one place where Jesus uses it. It's in Matthew 13, verses 10 through 11. Okay? Context here is that Jesus has just gotten done speaking a parable to people. And his disciples are coming to him, and his disciples are telling him, hey, 
Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Similar context, similar way it's used everywhere it's used in the, in the New Testament. So the way that word is used has implications in terms of how we interpret it with Paul. Paul's not just saying it's a one-way pursuit of knowledge, of knowing Christ, right? He's not just saying, though it's important, he's not just saying, know your Bible and what God has said before. Essential, important, not complete. He's not just saying, pray to God, one-way street. You need to do that, but not complete. He's not just saying, meditate on what God did, right? Important, not complete. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that there is an active being on the other side who is trying to engage with us, right? Who wants to engage with us and who is trying to reveal secrets of the kingdom of heaven in this passage. And he's trying to reveal secrets of himself to us now, right? Now. Why is that pertinent? Because it implies that both parties are alive and dynamic. That is important because my assertion and our second barrier is that God is alive, but we don't live like it. We don't live like it. Some of you may be sitting and thinking, I know God's alive. I know God's alive. I'm not saying you don't know it. I'm saying we don't fundamentally live like God's alive and act like God's alive. Okay? What do I mean by that? I'm going to give an analogy in terms of how we go before God and in, interact and engage with him, okay? I think we fundamentally interact with God like this, okay? And these are meaningful moments, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to demean these moments in terms of us going and remembering the fallen, right? I've done this, right? I've had loved ones that have passed away, right? What do we do? We go, we remember what they did, we remember what they said, we remember the impact that they had on our lives. We, they may have even written letters or notes to us, words that still have meaning to us today, right? That they impact us now. But the way that that engagement works is there's not a dynamic revelation on the other side, right? This is not Jesus. Jesus is alive. He conquered the grave. He left us his Holy Spirit. He's here, Okay? And I love what Mother Teresa says. She actually has a quote. She was interviewed by, about this in terms of intimacy with God. And I thought, it is, I thought it was perfect and yet deeply frustrating for me, right? So I love it and hate it at the same time. But we're going to read this in just right now, okay? So the interviewer asked, when you pray, what do you say to God? Mother Teresa replied, I don't talk. I simply listen. Believing he understood what she had just said, the interviewer next asked, ah, then what is it that God says to you when you pray? Mother Teresa replied, he also doesn't talk. He also simply listens. There was a long silence, with the interviewer seeming a bit confused and not knowing what to ask next. Finally, Mother Teresa breaks the silence by saying, if you can't understand the meaning of what I've just said, I'm sorry but there's no way I can explain it any better. Right? I love this and I hate it. I really do. It's, the, it's like the picture of intimacy, right? And yet it's so uncomfortable. 
right? For all of us. And I think for, for me and for all of us, there's something about that that resonates, right? Something about, mm, man, that, that kind of makes sense, and yet it desperately doesn't. Why doesn't it, right? Because there's no checklist. There's no flow sheet. There's no formula that then if I just tick off the boxes, I'm at this place called intimacy, right? That's not the way this works, right? It is desperately important to do the things that God has called us to do. But if we actually don't leave room in our lives, and I love what someone said when they came to me before, after the first service, for the silent places, right? The places of quiet, the places where we are in communion with the living God and just in his presence, right? And listening to him. If we don't leave room for that, then we will have a barrier to intimacy and it will shortchange the redemptive power in us and through us into this world. Right? So that brings us to our principle. Intimacy, is not, intimacy with God is not an achievement. It's a way of life. It is a fundamental value, a fundamental principle of the Christian walk. And it has to be something that you are comfortable with in the sense that there is no formula. There is no formula. There are things that are essential to do, but those essential things are not complete. Okay? With that, the questions, right? So I, you know, as, as I kind of try and walk through life, right, and I, I kind of get steered off course, I try and use these questions to bring me back just a little bit, right? What does it mean to kind of keep getting deeper and more intimate with the, li- with the living God? So first question, and I ask God, I ask God, God, am I aware you are alive? Am I aware you are alive? God, am I aware that you want to be in a deep, intimate relationship with me and have secrets left to tell me? Number three, God, am I living like you're dead? Am I living like you're dead? I'm going to say one more thing. If you heard nothing else, hear this, okay? I am living proof he's alive. I'm living proof, okay? The fact that who I was 14 years ago and that I'm here now doing this is miraculous. It's absurd. It, by definition, means that there is a living power in this world that transforms lives, period. God's alive, okay? And additionally, God wants so desperately to be in relationship with us now that he sent his son, Jesus. And his son, Jesus, didn't just die and conquer the grave to atone for our sins. Essential, not complete. He didn't just die to give us an entrance into heaven when we leave this world. Essential, not complete. He did it also so we can have a deep, intimate relationship with him now in this world where he will reveal secrets of the kingdom of God to us and he will reveal secrets of himself to us as well. So given that, right, given God's alive, right, given that he wants so much to be in relationship with us now, why do we so often live like he's dead? Let's pray. Father God, man, thank you so much uh, for your living word. Thank you so much for who you are and, um, man, Thank you that you are still impacting us and speaking to us this very day. Lord, I pray that we would never forget that. Pray that we would engage with you and believe that you have things left to say to us. May we be transformed every day. In Christ's name, amen.